Oh, before we get started, I was gonna make one quick announcement for something that in Russia that people should be following, which I wrote over on the board. The network is a case of anarchists that were arrested before the World Cup um, and basically tortured and framed with uh, having some giant terrorist conspiracy to undermine Russia. And they're, they've been in jail for over a year and um, one person agreed to a plea deal, but the other people are on trial. They, their trial started last week. So if you want to stay updated with what's happening, uh, repression.com, uh, yeah, we'll have updates on the trial. I think you can also donate to legal costs and, and write them notes of solidarity and stuff. Um, but for my actual talk, uh, well, first off, I got a little bit jealous when I saw the title of this conference, uh, Socialism in Our Time, and thought about giving a talk on Russia, um, because the, the title of the conference really reflects a newfound optimism on the US left, uh, that socialism is back on the political horizon after almost three decades of capitalist triumphalism following the end of the Cold War and levels of struggle are finally catching up, also to the dissolution of the 2008 financial crisis, seeing strikes, anti-racist movements that expose uh, the depth of state violence in the US and a socialist feminist movement. Um, but unfortunately, this optimism is yet to arrive in the other set of countries that's experiencing the end of history, which is the ex-Soviet and Eastern Bloc countries themselves. So while there are strikes and protests there, um, there's also a lot of countries with no major left or even left liberal parties that could give expression to social movements because uh, sort of neoliberal conservatism is so hegemonic um, and there's lots of countries with no free elections at all. So in this talk I'm going to try and explain some of the reasons why the situation is so bad, um, looking at legacies of late Soviet paternalism and post-Soviet marketization. Um, and then I'm also going to summarize kind of four um, uh, ongoing, I guess, threats uh, to, to the workers' movement in Russia and, and their deleterious effects uh, on socialists there um, and, and what it will take to resist that. Um, and one note, before I get started, this talk kind of has to be international at some level. I have the most, most experience being in Russia. I spent most of the last year there, so that's going to be the focus. Um, but since Russia is a regional power or like a mini-empire, uh, uh, R Russian policies have a lot of effects on leftists in the region, and so obviously, you know, we have to cultivate ties um, in, uh, with leftists like between countries near Russia and, and with the Russian left, so that they don't get crushed altogether. But geopolitics, as such, is not going to be the subject of my presentation. And neither is like the Russia investigation in Congress. And um, I'm. Somewhat depressingly, I'm mostly going to be talking about the conditions that set the bar very high for any radical movement um, that would come out of Russia, but I'm happy to talk about like concrete ex examples of struggles during the Q&A. Okay, so start starting off um, with sort of the weight of history and Soviet legacies. This is going to sound kind of obvious or like maybe suspiciously anti-communist, but it's really important to have a left critique of the Soviet Union. Uh, in order to be able to sort of soberly face up to the problems uh, that people who are organizing there have inherited. Conditions in the Soviet Union were basically awful if you were a worker trying to actually organize and defend your self-interest. Um, so, like people probably know about the large-scale large state violence under Stalin, um, forced collectivization of agriculture that led to famine, um, like purges and people being sent to the gulags in, in the hundreds of thousands. There's a labor code that criminalized being late to work. Um, there were mass deportations of ethnic groups, uh, everybody from like Crimean Tatars to Koreans. Um, 
And, but it's important to know that even after this, once we get into the more relatively peaceful times of Khrushchev and Brezhnev, um, the privileges or sort of social democratic gains that workers had um, were mostly a tool of government sort of legitimation and it, they weren't something that workers were actively defending or enhancing. So uh, there were yellow unions that played an essentially managerial role distributing um, benefits like housing and vacation time. Um, and then there were other controls like uh, internal migration controls that made it hard to move and get jobs in different cities. Um, uh, women with children were weighed down by the double burden of doing more than 30 hours of domestic labor a week, like more than men did. Um, so, so being a worker in terms of being, you know, represented or represented on Soviet mosaics or like in Soviet art was fine, like your identity as a worker, but being a worker in terms of acting as a class for yourself was not. So going on strike or like organizing a reading group interpreting Lenin against the grain could mean going to jail. Um, so that leaves us with basically two problems. The first one is the problem of workers' organizations, which has kind of three sub-problems. So first of all, they're starting from scratch, people in Russia and, and also all the other post-Soviet countries as far as unions go. Um, so the official state unions that, that inherited sort of the Soviet uh, unions, um, uh, like legal entities, uh, have, for example, in Russia, have leaders in Putin's United Russia Party. They basically argue against strikes and independent unions organizing and try to look for common interests with the bosses. Um, so in no way are they fighting Soviet paternalist attitudes. Um, and, the, and the union tradition that does exist is based more in wildcat strikes during perestroika and, and during the 90s. Um, it's the same thing with social movements. So social movements in the Soviet Union, like there, there was no 1960s and people were kind of uh, forced to choose either to go underground as part of the dissident movement or to be relatively apolitical. So like for example, I know this affected the disability rights movement in, in the Soviet Union. Um, so union social movements, and then also the revolutionary tradition, there's not some sort of unbroken line from Trotsky. Um, there's like a little bit of inheritance with sort of dissident leftist reading groups in, in the Soviet Union and, and activists from the 90s. But yeah, so basically all those three things have to be built from scratch. Um, and then the other big problem is the problem of historical memory, which is that the Soviet past is very open to co-optation by nationalists. So you can get this sort of like make Russia great again attitude where like even if people are nostalgic, like what they're nostalgic for is the social gains, um, you can just try and sell them the nationalist parts. So like, like the thing that actually got you these gains, the Russian Revolution, that was like probably done by Trotsky, the Jew, or whatever. But um, but like oh, of course we're also simultaneously not fascist because we fought against Hitler in World War II. So like nope, nobody is fascist here. Um, so there, so there's a lot of. Uh, nationalist co-optation, especially of Stalin's legacy, and so while le leftists fight for principles espoused in word by the Soviet Union, like internationalism or basic economic guarantees or or achievements like abortion rights, um, and they fight against sort of neoliberalism and explicit social Darwinist ideologies, we have to be very careful in not um, attributing a sort of progressive power of their own to Soviet institutions or Soviet nostalgia. Okay, and then another reason I highlight the deep problems of Soviet society is because it doesn't, it doesn't like cancel out the horrors of the post-Soviet period. It just explains uh, sort of why workers were uh, unable to resist or unable to seize sort of the, any opportunities um, presented by Gorbachev's liberalization and perestroika. Um, so the 90s were a really rough time in Russia. Uh, GDP shrunk by 40%. Um, 
wage uh, areas were very common. Um, for example, like the statistic from 1995 is like 20% of people got their wages paid late, which was actually a form of uh, like, because inflation was so high, state-owned businesses and uh, privatized businesses could lend money to themselves basically um, by not paying the workers until like the, the next month when their wages were actually worth less. Um, life expectancy shrunk by an average of four years. Uh, the population of Russia actually shrunk as a whole. Um, There's a spread of like uh, HIV and other diseases through intravenous drug use. So the 90s really were a rough time, um, but it's also important, and this, um, this is kind of leading into the next topic, to realize that uh, a lot of Vladimir Putin, the current president's legitimacy rests on his image as being the opposite of Boris Yeltsin, the president in the 90s, um, and not his heir as he actually kind of was, because Yeltsin appointed Putin prime minister and then resigned, leaving Putin to be acting president in, in 1999. So, but Putin nonetheless poses as a stable leader, saving Russians from economic uncertainty. Um, but in fact, it was under Putin that the number of billionaires, as recorded by Forbes in Russia, went from zero in 2000 to 106 today. Uh, and Russia is also incredibly unequal. The top 10% of households own 87% of Russia's wealth. I think the top 1% owns like 45%. Um, and the top 10% gets 45% of its income, which is like the same as the US. Um, and while only I think 10% of Russians nominally live below the poverty line, according to a study by the Higher School of Economics, uh, four in 10 Russians have trouble finding enough money for food and clothes each month. So. Um, and also on the level of public politics, Russia is not very free. Most TV stations are owned by the government. Um, laws for registering parties are, I think, around as restrictive as in the US with our two-party system. Uh, parties that do exist have been thoroughly co-opted because they get, like, in, in return for passing a certain vote threshold, they get, like, a little bit of, they get money from the state, which funds the majority of their budgets. So they just kind of, like, do the least possible to get elected year after year. Um, yeah. Oh, and there's also like the government puts pressure on public employees to turn out and vote for it. Um, protests can be met with like criminalization and large fines. Um, so it's not really free. But it's important to remember that some of this is also a continuity like with the contradictions of the 90s. So, for example, Boris Yeltsin, um, oh man, bombed the parliament in 1993 uh, to get like the presidential powers that he needed to pass economic past market reforms, which Putin inherited. Um, yeah, basically I was gonna talk about ongoing neoliberalism uh, in, uh, like through the 2010s, but basically there's also been cuts to public sector employment um, and the retirement age was raised last year um, to 65 years for men and 60 years for women, but the problem being that men's life expectancy is only like 67 oh. on average. So, so there's this kind of big problem that people have to face of austerity. And then there's also um, the problem sort of in the activist scene in general of the conception of, uh, like I call it after Ilya Matviev, two Russias. So there's this like framework that liberals and the nationalist bourgeoisie kind of share, which is that there's like an educated urban minority and then there's the brainwashed masses. And so liberals think like, we are the persecuted urban minority like struggling against all these zombies and, and then the ruling class can always conveniently invert this and say like, you know, Putin is defending the majority of Russians from these like meddling rich people in Moscow and St. Petersburg. But what this perspective uh, really lacks is, you know, a democratic vision, um, 
pretty much based on open contempt for working people. And it, and it really underestimates um, people's ability to learn and build solidarity through their experiences at jobs and sites of social reproduction. So, so hopefully leftists do have that optimism. Okay, I'm going to speed through three other big problems confronting the Russian left and their kind of reflections within the movement. The first one is imperialism, which uh, there's basically a lot of history to cover there. Um, one of the big ways that Putin established himself as a strong leader while he was acting president before he competed in the presidential election, since nobody knew him, he was basically a bureaucrat before that, was the war in Chechnya. So after the Soviet Union dissolved, um, uh, Chechnya, which is like a republic in the North Caucasus uh, of Russia, uh, had voted for a, a pro-independence president and, and refused to sort of join the Russian Federation after the end of the Soviet Union, but basically Yeltsin uh, crushed that kind of nationalist resistance. Then there was like an Islamist uh, resistance in Chechnya, which Putin fought against. And now there's a sort of like state subsidized little despot, Ramzan Kadyrov, um, ruling that area of Russia. Uh, and then Russia's also cultivated um, like in 2008. Um, by intervening in Georgia and in 2014 intervening in Ukraine, frozen conflicts um, where it, it sort of like purports to swoop in and save these people from Western fascism, but actually like it doesn't, uh, you know, like those areas where the frozen conflicts are, like the leadership is very much um, sort of always under threat of being replaced from Moscow. And that actually lends credibility to Georgian and Ukrainian liberals who say like, like, you know, only the West can protect us from Russia invading, because if Russia actually invades, then that seems plausible. And there's also everyday xenophobia. There's a lot of migrant workers, especially from Central Asia and the Caucasus. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of liberal oppositioners in Russia like to scapegoat them too and, and say, like, you know, uh, if you vote for me, I would introduce like a fair visa regime for all these people or whatever. Um, so there's the problem of imperialism, and then there's kind of the the uh, reflection of that problem, which is um, campism, where people think that they have to pick one geopolitical camp or another. Um, uh, so like, please don't think that like Putin building a multipolar world is the same as like working class counter hegemony. It's not. Don't be embarrassed to criticize Russian nationalism as if like liberals had a monopoly on those facts. Like it's important that we say them too. Uh, and also please, please, don't make Russians wait until the right geopolitical movement, like when nobody's going to co-opt them, to protest Putin. Like, it's, like you can't you can't make people wait until like, and, and say like, oh, you know, if you protest, that's going to play into American hands, and, and just kind of like suck it up until I don't know, like maybe they have to wait for the socialist revolution in America. That's unfair. Okay, and then the other two things that really have their claws, uh, sort of deep in Russia, are patriarchy and fossil fuels. So. Um, Domestic violence is a really serious issue in Russia. Estimates are from like 10,000 to 14,000 Russian women die each year at the hands of their partners, which is someone every 40 minutes. Um, there's a wage gap. Uh, there's, uh, you know, the double burden is intact. Um, there's a list of professions officially forbidden to Russian women and also like widespread hiring discrimination. Um, and then there's also a problem with sort of officially sanctioned homophobia, which is kind of mixed with nationalism in the way of saying that like, you know, beating up these gay people is like us defending our traditional values from the West, as if gay people were like, they were all rich and powerful and they were all imported. 
Um, and this is reflected on the Russian left, unfortunately, in the phenomenon of brochialism, which must be combated. There's sort of like egregious, you know, incel online groups, but there's, but also just in general, kind of dismissiveness um, towards uh, feminism or like LGBT movements as if they have nothing to do with socialism or they're distracting from the class struggle. And then even in places where people aren't, even in socialist organizations where people aren't necessarily hostile to feminism, there's just kind of like a low level of theoretical knowledge or like uh, a low ability to sort of integrate like class struggle and, and these political struggles. Um, not to disparage the work of socialist feminists and Marxist feminists in Russia, which totally exists and is awesome, but in ter terms of like at an organizational level, like there's not a lot of organizations taking this on which is obviously bad for leftist legitimacy and the feminist movement and like connection to that radicalization. And it's also bad in that it uh, gives people a false idea of how easy it will be to defeat capitalism because they don't realize how it reproduces itself in that way. Okay, patriarchy and virtualism. And then the next thing is fossil fuels. So if you guys saw that study released recently where it was like the top 100 uh, companies are uh, responsible for 70% of the greenhouse gas emissions. Number three on that list was Russia representing with Gazprom, the state natural gas company, um, and also like the coal company and Rosneft, the oil company, were on that list as well. Um, and so a lot of Russians are not super concerned about global warming because there's not a lot of, I think maybe because there's not a lot of cities like on the coast that will get flooded. They kind of think like, oh, this will be a benefit for us, um, but it won't because the Siberian permafrost is going to melt, releasing anthrax, old viruses, a uh, shit ton of methane. There was, there was some anthrax outbreaks in like 2016, which people think maybe were caused by that, um, causing forest fires, which we've already seen. Um, and also city infrastructure in colder places will be hard hit by winters where snow is constantly thawing and refreezing. So uh, global warming will take its toll on Russia. Um, and it's important to know that um, fossil fuel sales are responsible for 40% of federal budget revenues. So the Russian state is very dependent on this. Um, and so the, the sort of corollary on the left, which I think people need to fight against, is nostalgia. Like the idea that we can just, you know, renationalize these companies or like, okay, maybe they're already nationalized. Well, we can have sort of democratic control over them. Um, but like if fossil fuels are not, they're not really like the, the sort of national natural wealth of Russia. They're like a time bomb. Um, and so, so we can't, yeah, we can't rely on the idealist approach of like waiting for people to love the Soviet Union enough to take us there. Cause there's actually a, a time scale of a short amount of decades, um, before all that stuff starts happening. Um, so I can briefly like like two minutes say in terms of organizing conditions in Russia we're unfortunately not at the like Russian Podemos or like Russian Bernie Sanders stage um, although people do try and participate in local elections the socialist movement is in like the hundreds of people and a lot of the time they're busy trying not to get like fined for protesting um, yeah or otherwise repressed but obviously people still dream of having uh, public politics and, and being able to appeal to the masses of Russians. Um, yeah, 
and we have to support them in that without being a sort of like provincial Western social Democrats being like, why don't you just have a Bernie Sanders? Because there's a lot of countries in the world that are like Russia or Ukraine or Belarus or Kazakhstan or whatever that are, you know, they're capitalists, but they're not bourgeois democracies. Um, and so, you know, all of these movements kind of like unions or feminism or socialism for the subculture of young men on the internet, they all exist in Russia. Um, people are trying to build sort of organizations within Russia and, and networks with its neighbors. There's lots of small struggles like in universities or like um, in fast food chains or car factories. Um, and some of them are successful, but it's hard to f build the, the audience and the organizations that will share that experience among socialists. Um, but ultimately, that's what we have to do. The, the only way out is, yeah, forward. So thank you. I think that there's actually some similarities between the the political landscape you were discussing and, of course, the awesome. East, East Germany um, oh, sweet. historical memory there. Um, my name is Kathleen Brown. Um, I'm an American, but I've been living in Germany for the past six years, past four years in Berlin. And I'm active on the, the Berlin left and um, part of Dillinke Internationals, which is kind of a in an unofficial caucus within Die Linke, the left party, um, for folks who are, who are non-German. Um, okay, so I want to start with a bit of a hopeful picture, because um, if folks saw um, online, uh, last weekend in Berlin there were over 40,000 people who took to the streets to demand <coughs> that the city of Berlin expropriate the landlords. Mm -hmm. Um, and this it was aimed at privately controlled apartment blocks of over 3,000 units. And um, the, the demand was to bring them back under um, public control because after mm -hmm. the, um, reunification, the city was laden with debt and sold off many of the public housing stock to private corporations that have now um, made incredible profit at the expense of, of um, Berlin's residents. Um, so, even market-rate apartments are in short supply, and Berlin in the past decade has witnessed a 75% increase in average rent. So this small example, struggle over housing, I think is uh, one of the latest responses to neoliberalism, which has eaten away at the social fabric of um, German social democracy, post-war German social democracy. And in recent years, um, the political consensus has come under immense strain, destabilized by two decades of neoliberal reforms, and now wracked by political polarization. Economic transformation has taken the shape of deregulation, labor deregulation, and a reduced welfare state. Um, the consequences of this uh, was to strengthen Germany's position in, within the EU and, of course, globalized economy, um, as German workers' wages remained stagnant, and this helped to suppress inter-euro competition. And it supported Germany's export industries, including, uh, of course, automobiles, of course, this example wasn't the only, wasn't just automobiles that were exported, but this model um, pressured other economies um, like France um, to emulate its, its workplace reforms. And in fact, Germany's constitutional clause demands that the country hold no debt, um, and this has meant cut, cutting long-term investment. Um, there's a notable lack of investment in public infrastructure. So one um, widely known example is that internet speeds are some of the slowest in Europe because they don't have the actual copper, they don't have the infrastructure um, to upgrade it past uh, a certain level. Um, bridges and roads are crumbling. Of course, it sounds familiar to us here. 
Um, much of this deregulation took place under the Social Democrats and the Greens, uh, under Gerhard Schröder in the 1990s, similar, of course, to what we've seen elsewhere um, under Bill Clinton or um, New Labour in the UK, so undertaken without provoking resistance. And this has created really um, an, uh, an increasingly precarious working class, often um, mired in economic penury. I hope I'm saying that right. So Oliver Nachtwey describes this as regressive modernism, and he's giving a talk, I think, at 1 o'clock, which is discussing Germany's uh, economic uh, difficulties. So this working class, of course, is gendered and racialized. Women, especially immigrant women, um, are disproportionately concentrated in low-wage service uh, sector jobs or care jobs. Um, and this, of course, has led um, in part to an increase in struggle around um, social reproductive um, sectors um, in terms of teachers, nurses, childcare workers um, have all gone on strike. And I know Edna's in the other room talking a bit about the women, the feminist movement in, in Germany. Um, on the other hand, uh, we also have the introduction of dual contracts. So in automobile factories, um, there'll be workers that have permanent full-time contracts and then the new um, un underclass secondary uh, workers who are on contract temporary and uh, of course often immigrant. So this um, um, class warfare has political consequences. The breaking up of the social contract um, has led to predictably anti-establishment sentiments. And politically, the historically governing uh, parties, the Christian Democratic Union, the CDU, and the Social Democrats have seen their vote shares collapse. I think in the most recent election in Bavaria, they received less than 50% to, oh no, SPD I think gotten only 9%, don't quote me on that, but really they've lost um, their, their voting base. The far-right alternative for Deutschland, uh, alternative for Germany, which began in 2011, just became the third largest party in the Bundestag in 2017. They have 94 seats, 12.6% of the vote, and they, uh, you know, this was a breakthrough for them. So the far-right party is not a fascist party per se, but it definitely creates space for a radicalizing right-wing milieu. It does have neo-Nazis within it, um, and this, their success in the ballot box has emboldened uh, neo-Nazis um, and um, right-wing thugs in the street. At the same time this has occurred, then we see a shifting of, of the entire political establishment to the right. Angela Merkel um, with the CDU and the Bavarian sister party, the CSU, have really shifted rightwards to try and win back these voters. Um, so this is the biggest example of this is Horst Seehofer. Um, he's the Minister of the Interior, based in Bavaria. Um, and after neo-Nazis marched in Chemnitz um, in pro a provocation against refugees, um, Seehofer argued that Islam has no, no home in Germany. There's also been an increase in repression against left-wing activists, um, flexing of muscle by the police, expanding powers of surveillance, um, preemptive arrest, and continuing collusion between the far right and the police. So, at the same time the right-wing forces have grown, um, well, I should also say, of course, continuing deportations, um, which, which um, has occurred um, even as uh, a million people arrived in Germany. Um, Angela Merkel responded with, with deportations um, at the same time. So, that's the, the kind of um, political landscape at the same time, we've also seen inspiring anti-racist demonstrations and, and um, growing movements of social solidarity. 
and uh, a burgeoning resistance to neoliberalism that um, has not yet translated into electoral gains. Some of the big demonstrations that people might have heard about, um, there were 250,000 people in the streets of Berlin last October um, under the slogan of uh, indivisible, um, which was demanding um, social solidarity for everyone, inclusion of refugees, anti-deportation, um, Zebra demos, which are for a safe passage in the Mediterranean, Mediterranean against drowning refugees, climate justice, we have the Fridays for Future um, in Germany, which is very large. Um, we have, of course, social feminist, socialist feminist movement. We had a women's strike uh, March 8th. So there's a lot happening. There's a lot bubbling up. However, the party that we best positioned uh, to take advantage of this growing anti-neoliberal movement um, had, finds itself divided and weakened. So this is taking a long time, so I'm going to have to speed up. Um, this, the Democratic Socialist Party, uh, Die Linke, the left party, um, and its recent intra-party di <clears throat> divisions over questions of open borders and anti-racist work, um, and the continuing contradiction of remaining within the constraints of the European Union um, have meant that the left has, party has not been able to um, really see the, the gains of, of a growing radicalization on the left as of yet. Um, I won't go into the history of De Lincoln, um, but just to say it's calls for the abolition of the NATO military alliance, a 75% tax on Germany's top earners, an end to temporary contract, social redistributive policies, um, and it really gained quite a few seats. Um, it was founded in 2007, and it won almost 12% of the national vote in 2009. So that's almost the same as what the AfD won just recently. However, um, their early momentum was kind of halted around the time of the financial crisis, and Germany entered into crisis corporatism, where unions and businesses cooperated to save the economic powerhouse of the EU. That occurred, of course, on the backs of German workers, but of course Greek workers paying the highest price. Um, so I think one of the reasons to consider and, and uh, the, the party's roots in East German, the East German communist system, um, that's not what I'm going to be focusing on here, but certainly that's worth talking about because they've, they've had a hard time breaking into the West, um, in part because yeah, they, their former party came from an East German reformed communist party. Um, so that, that's, that's an element of it. Second part is, of course, they don't take any corporate donations. They get very little media uh, attention, so, so there's that as well. But I think one of the main contradictions is, of course, the EU. And we see this ac across the board, is that the redistributive policies that Delinke would like to see requires them to take on the EU um, and, I would argue, exit the EU. Um, and so that, that contradiction is yet to be resolved. So while they call for an EU of the millions, not the millionaires, it's not clear how that will occur. There's discussions of reform, but this has gotten very little, very little traction, and I think it'll be interesting to, to hear about. Um, yeah, of course, this is the, the main contradiction we're seeing with all of the, the left movements within the European Union. So this fuzzy position um, um, means that Delinke is unable to offer um, a left alternative um, that is truly radical, that would allow them to do the things that, that, they, that they want to do. At the same time, um, it leaves opposition to the EU to come from the right. And I think that this is really where we, it's the biggest danger, um, is that what we've seen, the far right, of course, um, has been the fiercest critics, critics of, of the European Union. Um, this is coming an alliance um, among, yeah, alternative for, for, for Deutschland, okay. Um, 
yeah, the Freedom Party in the Netherlands, the Five Star Movement in Italy. Um, the, all of these folks uh, met together last month and they are running in the EU um, elections. And with uh, unification based on their hostility to immigration, the far-right conspiracies of demographic replacement and resurgent nationalism. And of course, the core of that, um, also, also criticism of the EU. So I think that that's um, a major contradiction. So the, growth, the dangerous growth of the far right presents the question to the socialist left, of course, always, what is to be done? How are we to stop the far right and its handmaiden authoritarian neoliberalism? And for Dilinke, the left party, um, what should our response be? Um, right, so in the most recent elections, Dilinke, they, they did increase their vote share. It went from 8.6% to 9.2%, very modest increase, um, particularly in West Germany um, among young people. And I think this is significant, and especially where Dilinke has been active in movement work, support for strike actions, um, refugee solidarity work, when they are actually on the ground supporting social movements, there's an organic connection between this growing radicalization um, and, and the ballot box. However, the party lost votes in former East Germany, sometimes heavily to Alternative für Deutschland. Um, and so this, I'm going to jump ahead, this of course um, has political the question is, well, if Die Linke lost votes to AfD, then what should our response be? Um, and co-chair Sarah Wagenknecht um, has embarked on a protectionist nationalist course <coughs> intending to shift Die Linke rightwards on the question of refugee rights and open borders, specifically um, to win back AfD voters, um, but to kind of make the project uh, palatable or um, practical um, to, to um, the larger public. And she's always, she's consistently criticized Die Linke from the right. Um, when there was a terrorist attack um, two years ago in December in Berlin, um, she criticized Merkel's uncontrolled opening of the borders. Um, she's referred to the government's uh, loss of control when uh, immigrants are pouring over the borders. Um, she argued last October that open borders was a demand that most people perceive as unreal. And somehow that this was like a, a neoliberal argument because immigrants coming in um, is a gift to, to corporations. Um, so that's her, that's her position. Okay, um, so in doing this, she sidestepped questions about racism, declining to visit the, the city of Chemnitz after um, neo-Nazis uh, attacked immigrants in the streets. And this, of course, has given space, further space to the far right and created a huge political fight within Die Linke because Die Linke affirmed again their commitment to open borders. Um, so. She, um, she found herself outvoted and in response, last September, launched a cross-party alliance called Aufstehen, or Get Up or Rise Up. And she called it a collective uh, movement seen as a cross-party rallying point for discontented voters of the SPD and the Greens, the CDU, and even the AfD. Um, it had splashy media coverage. She tried to connect it with the movement in France. She even wore a little yellow vest on a <laughs> press conference. Um, and initially it did get some interest, it, it, 170,000 people signed on to it, um, that's the, three times the number of actual left party members. But despite the early rallies and chapter meetings, the movement failed to gain traction, especially among young people. If you went to any of the Aufstein rallies, it was, it was um, lots of older people. A major a strategic misstep was Wagenknecht's decision not to endorse the anti-racist demonstration um, Indivisible, which took place in Berlin last, last October. She didn't want to endorse it because of the question of open borders, but she, you know, it was actually a really embarrassing mistake. There were 250,000 people in the streets, um, and she stood to the side of that. 
um, and really it reflected very, very badly. Um, so far from galvanizing popular anger, Aufstein was a flop, leading to intense party infighting and weakening Die Linke, because then um, the media really picked up on the infighting, Sarah Wagenknecht shift rightwards, um, you know, red-brown um, comparisons, um, and it made a, a kind of united or unified party presence in the most recent campaigns um, impossible. Because of that, that's why we've seen the left, the left centrist party, the Green Party, um, in Bavaria. They did really, really well. They won 17% of the vote, okay. um, in particular because they were able to present um, a, united, a united face. They also talked about climate justice, which is very, obviously very present, um, and so on. So, Since then, Wagenknecht has since resigned. This was two weeks ago. She resigned from leading Aufstehen, and she resigned as co-chair of the left party's um, parliamentary uh, uh, faction. And she said, my error was that I had thought it was going to be simpler to bring the dissatisfied into the streets. And that's in reference to her Aufstehen movement. And yet, of course, the unsatisfied are in the streets, <laughs> and particularly around anti-racist um, demands. Um, yeah, I've already mentioned that refugee solidarity, climate justice, women's strikes, fair housing. Um, and I think the important thing to say is mobilizations against um, racism happen not because of Wagon Connect, but in spite of her. So um, I think that what we, what Dilinka needs to focus on then. Um, even though it hasn't yet translated into electoral gains, and we do see the contradiction um, of remaining within the EU, there are things that um, Delinke can do. I think, in part, it's not a traditionally... It, 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 if it sees itself as purely an electoral party, I think it can't compete on those terms. Um, it needs to be connected and part of building social movements, and again, where it does that, it is rewarded um, at the ballot box. Um, Obviously, anti-racist internationalist demands have to center that, that work, especially given the far right's tactic of, of um, scapegoating refugee and immigrants, which, of course, if there's an extra session, we can, accept, we can expect um, the uh, even further um, resurgence of the far right. I think also, taking on the, the, the European Union um, and considering kind of, how to explain this? I mean, offer a utopia, I guess, of something different, of demanding the impossible, of offering a bold plan. Um, the far right is um, incredibly bold and they're very clear about um, what they want and uh, Die Linke, I think, has to be equally, equally bold. I think also not relying on a charismatic leader to carry this, but actual organizing um, on the ground um, has shown uh, the largest. But the overall contradictions that I laid out, I think, will not be uh, resolved um, anytime soon. At the same time, and I'll try and finish up here, um, the dangers of electoralism. If Die Linke only thinks of itself as an electoral party, of course, then the goal is to get elected, winning at all, all costs, and that can lead to um, a type of, of watering down of its most radical demands and really the demands that are required to solve the, the problems that we face. And so there's actually an argument against um, the other party co-chair Katja Kipping, who's interested in being in government. And there's a big fight here because um, lots of folks think that a red-red-green coalition, Die Linke, the Social Democrats, the Greens, actually being in power and running things would be disastrous 
um, for the left. And the question is, can Die Linke govern with the old guard of the neoliberal social democracy and somehow come out unscathed? unscathed? So the, the danger uh, of actually governing without um, social movements, without any way to win the demands, um, would actually, I think, would be um, an opening for the right. Because when you're actually managing capitalism, of course, what we've seen um, uh, the experience with Syriza, um, managing capital, you're no longer offering an alternative, but you're viewed as responsible. Um, and I think that that is one of the, one of the dangers and, and one of the ways, one of the reasons why Die Linke, where it lost votes um, in former East Germany, also in places where it, was, where it had been governing and actually um, implementing um, some of the deportations and, um, and other measures. So, um, to conclude, I think what we are seeing is a breaking apart of the political consensus, we're seeing polarization, a growth of the left, um, a movement towards strengthening social movements that are internationalist, um, that are anti-racist, um, and if Die Linke wants to succeed, I think it very much needs to focus on that and taking on the bigger question of how to break out of the straitjacket um, that is the EU. Um, hi folks. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Sinn Féin, uh, the modern Sinn Féin party in Ireland in the context of uh, the, the attempts that have been made over the last century to marry the Republican tradition in Irish politics with left-wing uh, ideology and socialism and most of the significant attempts to build a radical left movement, uh, more successful, more failed, for better or for worse, have come out of that attempted fusion between republicanism and the left. A few years ago, um, in the context of the crisis of the Eurozone, um, there was a lot of talk about a new left emerging in the peripheral countries, um, such as Greece and Spain and Portugal, uh, parties like Syriza and Podemos. And Sinn Féin were frequently bracketed with those parties, and indeed they bracketed themselves with those parties um, and struck up a fairly warm relationship, in particular with Syriza and, and Alexis Tsipras. Um, obviously, outcomes in, in countries like Greece and Spain um, since then have, have cast a shadow or cast a cloud of doubt over that idea of a, of a new left. Uh, but Sinn Féin, it, even at the time when that talk was really at its peak, it was much less discussed and much less analysed than parties such as Syriza and Podemos, uh, because it came out of a very particular um, Irish tradition that um, couldn't be neatly slotted into those other categories. Um, so to go back to the roots of those, that tradition, um, republicanism in Irish politics really has meant a form of militant nationalism. Uh, it goes back to the 18th and 19th centuries, movements like the United Irishmen and the Fenians, and what distinguished them from other Irish nationalists was that, first of all, they, they set the goal of an Irish Republic that would be fully independent of Britain, that would have no halfway house between uh, the status quo and, and full independence and full sovereignty, and secondly, that they were willing to engage in armed struggle in pursuit of that goal. Um, not necessarily as the only tactic that they would pursue, but they would be willing to take up arms against British rule, and indeed over the course of the late 18th and 19th century, there were a number of unsuccessful uprisings in 1798, 1848, 1867. Uh, there was really a tradition of revolt that was unique in, um, in that part of, of Western Europe at the time. Um, the Republican tradition, as it emerged, it did have a fairly large dose of 
social radicalism implicit or explicit because it was influenced by the French Revolution, uh, by Tom Paine and, and by the Jacobins. Uh, Paine's book The Rights of Man was a bestseller in Ireland in the 1790s. Um, now that form of social radicalism, it was pre-socialist. Um, you know, the rhetoric would pit the people against the aristocracy rather than uh, the working class against the bourgeoisie, which wouldn't really have been a meaningful polarisation in, in Ireland at that time anyway, because there's very little large-scale industry outside the northeastern corner around Belfast. Uh, the dominant form of class politics for most of the 19th century in Ireland was the disputes over land ownership, really bitter struggles over, over the land question. So it was only in the beginning of the, of the 20th century really that you began to see quite late compared with other European countries, the emergence of socialism and the modern workers' movement. And the question then became how would this uh, previously established radical republican tradition relate to that? Um, and this came into, into focus after 1916 with the uh, successful, partially successful national revolution in Ireland. It began with the Easter Rising of 1916, which was defeated, but then followed by a much more successful campaign of guerrilla warfare. Um, and the outcome of which was a partially independent state in the south, the 26 counties of, of, of the south of Ireland, uh, while the six counties of the, of the north, uh, where the Protestants, Unionist population that was loyal to Britain, was concentrated, they still remained under British rule. Um, during that struggle, the modern Republican movement uh, assumed the organisational form that it still has to this day with a political party, a political wing called Sinn Féin, um, and a military wing, the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, which distinguishes it from a number of national liberation movements in other parts of the world. That in those movements you have a unified political and military movement with the, the military wing under the direct control of the political wing. That doesn't apply. You know, Sinn Féin and the IRA are formally distinct organisations. Often they have been led by the same people at the same time, but strictly speaking, the president of Sinn Féin has no jurisdiction over the IRA and the chief of staff of the IRA has no jurisdiction. Um, over Sinn Féin. Um, during that phase of struggle from 1916 until the early 20s, um, the socialist elements in the movement was relatively marginal and minoritarian. Um, James Connolly, who, who at that time and still to this day was the most important Irish Marxist thinker, he was one of the leaders of the 1916 Rising and was executed by the British Army for his role in that. Um, Connolly had always argued that the working class should lead the struggle for national independence, that the struggle for socialism and the struggle for independence should be synonymous. Um, when it came to the crunch in 1916, um, he took part in a rising in alliance with non-socialist, petty bourgeois nationalists um, who were, you know, relatively progressive but were not explicitly socialist. And the social content of that uprising was much, was much more ambiguous than what Connolly had previously called for. What role he would have played if he had lived into the later period is a matter for speculation. Uh, but as it was from 1918 onwards, um, you know, the Labour movement was subordinate to Sinn Féin. Um, the movement, Sinn Féin did adopt a social programme known as the, the Democratic Programme, which was you know, a relatively progressive um, document calling for social democratic reforms, which they felt they needed to do to keep the working class on side during the struggle and to prevent organised labour from, from making any kind of independent bid for leadership. But after the um, uh, the annual Irish Treaty, which ended the War of Independence, and particularly after the Civil War, which followed from that, which was short but quite vicious, and all the more vicious for the fact that the people um, on the two sides have been, until very recently, comrades in the same struggle. Um, the anti-treaty side weren't willing to accept the compromises uh, involved in the Anglo-Irish Treaty, such as the, the partition um, of the island, leaving the North under 
under British rule and also the fact that um, the new state would be a dominion of the crown rather than, uh, rather than the republic. So there was a, a short and, and quite vicious civil war. In the course of that civil war, one of the leaders of the anti-treaty side, uh, Liam Mellows, um, who became in many ways the, the progenitor of modern left Republican, Repu republicanism, he argued that um, they should adopt a social program that could appeal to, to the workers and small farmers, you know, against the, the very conservative bourgeois leadership of the pro-treaty side. Uh, but that was dismissed um, by his comrades in the leadership. Uh, Mellows was in prison at the time, and he was um, soon afterwards uh, sent to the firing squad. Um, and the, the anti-treaty side carried on with a very abstract, um, you know, almost a, a platonic ideal of the republic that didn't have much. Um, you know, practical um, articulation. Uh, Roddy Connolly, who was the son of James Connolly, uh, actually went to Moscow uh, for one of the early congresses, the Communist International. And it was an attempt to set up a, a, a communist party in Ireland, uh, appealing for aid. And he met with Mikhail Borodin, one of the leaders of the Bolshevik Party. And Borodin had quite an acute insight into what was happening in, in Ireland. And he, he said, you know, um, it's ridiculous to fight against this free state on the basis of a sentimental plea. You know, they say they want a republic. What the hell do they want a republic for? Um, and that has been a recurrent feature of the Republican tradition, that there's often this sort of very abstract, um, you know, almost unworldly uh, idea of the republic um, and, and uh, an impatience with people who have more mundane material concerns about, you know, social and economic issues. Um, so after the 1920s, the Republican tradition really went into hibernation for a long period, uh, and it didn't thrust itself back to the forefront until the 1960s um, in relation to Northern Ireland, because Northern Ireland was really the only part of, of the island where militant nationalism still had real traction. It meant something because it was still under uh, British rule and, and the Catholic nationalist minority faced all kinds of discrimination. Um, so there was initially a civil rights movement that was modelled on the US example, demanding equal rights for nationalists under British rule. I mean, that was met with repression by the state, uh, very quickly um, an insurgency developed and um, the IRA in fact split at that time and it was divided between two camps that became known as the officials and the provisionals. The provisionals became by far the dominant faction uh, and that's the, you know, the Sinn Féin party today. Um, it was seen at the time as a left-right split um, because the officials explicitly defined themselves as Marxists um, they had been a faction arguing in the late 60s for the IRA to shift to the left to become an explicitly working class movement that would involve itself in open political activity, leading social struggles, leading unions, leading community activism and so on. Um, the provosts were very suspicious of that because they had this suspicion of politics as such, which is their blanket term for anything that's not armed struggle, not just parliamentary politics, but you know community activism and trade union politics. It's all seen as something that's quite... Um, you know, almost corrupt and reformist in, in itself. And um, the officials went, went on, a, on a different path. What really became significant for them in their division with the, with the provisionals, rather, it wasn't so much the question um, of Marxism versus anti-Marxism, it was the question of the state, the attitude to the state, whether it could be reformed, the attitude they took to the Protestant unionist population. The officials um, decided that before you could have a united Ireland, there would have to be a phase of democratic reform in Northern Ireland under British rule and that you could gradually separate uh, the working class Protestant population away from the leadership of unionism um, and achieve a United Ireland with their consent. Um, 
and following the logic of that position, they called a ceasefire at, at a very early stage in 1972, and thereafter largely separated themselves from the Republican tradition. They, they transformed themselves into, you know, a fairly conventional hard left, um, pro-Soviet Marxist party, um, which achieved some degree of electoral success in the south, but became increasingly marginal in the north, um, leaving the provost as, as a dominant Republican movement there. Now, the provost, when they launched, they had some quite McCarthyite themes in their rhetoric. You know, they accused the, the officials of propagating an alien social philosophy. They referred to them as red guards, um, you know, who were completely uh, at odds with, with the sentiments of the Irish people. But what really characterised them in that early phase, in the early to mid-70s, uh, it wasn't so much hardline conservatism, it was eclecticism. Um, that what united the provost was a commitment to you know, a united Ireland achieved through armed struggle and under that umbrella you could get people ranging from very conservative Catholics all the way to people with quasi-Marxist views. Uh, the programme that was adopted by Sinn Féin at that time which was called Era Nua, uh, New Ireland, um, it's a kind of petty bourgeois socialism really. You know, I know people often use petty bourgeois as a pejorative term but in this sense it's actually just descriptive that it was a form of socialism that could appeal to small property owners you know, it called for state ownership of major industries and you know an upper limit on, on land ownership, but said that people could still have their small farms, which is very important because small farmers were an important base for the IRA. They were the people who would provide you with space for arms dumps and secret training camps and so on, and you didn't want to antagonise them. Now, later on in the decades, in the late 1970s, when the provost were really facing an impasse and facing the prospect of being defeated, um, Jerry Adams came to the fore as their leader, uh, as he remained for the next 30 years. And even though it's only in the last year and a half that Adams has stepped down as the president of Sinn Féin, he's still clearly behind the scenes, a very influential figure, um, a remarkably long-lived career in Irish politics. And Adams went back to um, the idea of left republicanism as developed by people like Connolly, like Mellows, uh, and although he didn't acknowledge the influence as developed by the official IRA, um, he, he brought that forward as a way out of this impasse that they're facing and he said that you know you would, the, the movement should engage in trade union struggles and um, it should define itself as being socialist he said at one point you know we stand opposed to all forms and all manifestations of imperialism and capitalism um, he drafted a program for the movement that, that wasn't explicitly marxist but it was marxist in everything but name um, and he faced a bit of a backlash against that from traditionalists um, which you know, led Adams to, to give a you know, widely quoted interview at that time where he said, this, this isn't, Sinn Féin is not a Marxist party, it's not a Marxist movement, there's no Marxist influence in our movement whatsoever. And it was perfectly accurate in saying that it wasn't a Marxist party, it never defined itself as such, but the idea that it didn't have any Marxist influence was clearly disingenuous. But the nature of that influence was, was quite telling for its future, uh, its future development. If you look at the, the books that Adams published, he cited a number of books books by Marxist writers, but they were all directly related to Ireland. So you could say, as far as Adams was concerned, he was interested in Marxism to the extent that Marxism was interested in Ireland and, and in Irish politics, and to the extent that he could use it. Um, one of the, the guests at a Sinn Féin conference around that time was um, Michel Pablo, who some of you might know is like a, a, a famous or infamous figure in the debates of the Trotskyist movement in the Fourth International. Um, and he was there as a, as a fraternal delegate, but um, really what would have interested um, them in, in Pablo's career wasn't so much um, his role in the 
uh, intra-party disputes of Trotskyism. It was the fact that he'd been a gun runner for the FLN guerrillas in, in Algeria and had briefly been an advisor to, to, uh, to Ben Bella. Um, now going into the later part of the 1980s, um, Sinn Féin gradually toned down its left-wing rhetoric um, because they started to see it as a burden, um, as something that was, was preventing them from forging alliances with other nationalist parties. Over the course of the 1980s, they shift towards this idea that you're going to have a pan-nationalist alliance with, with parties, both North and South, to bring more pressure on, on the British government. And Adams rationalised this by falling back on what people in the Marxist tradition would refer to as stages theory, um, you know, the idea that before you can bring socialism onto the agenda, you have to achieve national independence in alliance with the progressive bourgeoisie. Um, you know, and and he, he used some of the arguments of uh, Marxist thinkers and Marxist movements to, to justify this. Um, the Sinn Féin and the Provost had a very close relationship with the ANC, um, which behind the scenes extended to members of the IRA giving the ANC training in techniques of guerrilla warfare and even going to South Africa uh, to carry out reconnaissance for bomb attacks. Um, so there, there, there was and there still is a very warm fraternal relationship with the ANC there. And I think for Sinn Féin this was useful because the ANC had a much more explicitly theorised version of stages theory um, which they could draw upon uh, to guide their actions. Now what this meant in practice was uh, going into the 1990s, um, you know, as late as, as 1989, um, Jim Gibney, who's a very close ally of Jerry Adams, influential figure in the Sinn Féin leadership, he talked about the impasse the movement was facing, you know, that their political growth of Sinn Féin was blocked, the IRA was unable to, to win and, and defeat the British state and force a withdrawal from, from Northern Ireland. He said we would need a, a new philosophy, and he said that philosophy could be found in creative Marxism, which was, you know, quite a, a, a bold thing to say in 1989. Uh, when the, the Eastern Bloc was collapsing. Um, but that didn't really assume any, any um, practical form. And in fact, what happened in the 1990s was that um, Sinn Féin looked towards the US and looked towards the Clinton administration as a friend. Um, and that was where the, the stages to really came into, into practice because the sort of people that they um, befriended in Capitol Hill, you had Steve, Steve King, for example, uh, the Republican congressman became the, the main ally of Sinn Féin. Um, yeah, and he's, he's uh, which is ironic because of all his fire-breathing, Islamophobic, war and terror rhetoric when it came to Ireland. King was a sort of hapless groupie of the IRA who went over to Ireland and got to meet with the, the Army Council of the IRA and he was like a kid in a candy store and I think they put on a big show for him and probably wore their balaclavas just to impress him. Um, had all allies with people like that, with the, you know, the Irish-American establishment, the Kennedys and so on. Uh, Bill Flynn, uh, Chuck Feeney, they even, friends of Sinn Féin even received a donation from Donald Trump. Um, so there, there was this, you know, lobbying clout and Irish-American lobbying which proved quite useful for them in, in bringing pressure to bear on, um, on the British government. Um, but it certainly meant that the hard left rhetoric of, of an earlier period and the anti-imperialist rhetoric was put in cold storage. Um, but what was interesting at the same time, and I'll, I'll finish up by um, I talk about this at the same time as in the north of Ireland, um, Sinn Féin were playing down their left-wing rhetoric and um, putting it off for some indef indefinite point <coughs> in the future. And when they eventually entered into a power-sharing government with the Unionist parties, um, the economic policy of that government was firmly within the, the neoliberal orthodoxy. And you know, Sinn Féin ministers were carrying out uh, privatisation of public services, welfare cuts, and so on. 
At the same time, in the South, uh, where Sinn Féin were trying to make political gains, they still had a left-wing programme, because that was the, the only um, political space that was available. And in a way, it's, it's a unique example of you know, stages theory, where the two stages of the National Revolution are being implemented simultaneously. You know, the struggle for the left-wing left programme is being advanced in the South, but it's in, in, um, in cold storage in the North. And this you know, gave them, up until the crisis of 2008 and afterwards, it gave them a relatively modest political niche in the South. But after um, the crash, it enabled them to make serious political gains and, and, and to come forward with um, you know, a political weight that they really hadn't had in, in the South since the 1920s uh, by standing as the most militant opponent of austerity, of the Troika programmes, um, and, and forging uh, relationships with parties like Syriza. Now, where this has ended up with at the present day, um, Sinn Féin really backed off from the idea of outright confrontation with the European Union after the experience of what happened with Greece in 2015, and they've set their sights lower again. Um, similar in a way to some of the parties like Podemos and the other peripheral countries, they've shied away from the idea of leaving the, the Euro, um, and they've also changed their, their policy on coalition, so that in principle they're open once more to the idea of forming a junior coalition with the centre-right parties. Um, but at the same time, um, there's been a, a political crisis in the North, triggered by Britain's vote to leave the European Union, and Sinn Féin has seen in this you know, an unexpected windfall, um, where the idea of United Ireland has a lot more traction than it did a few years ago, it seemed more elusive than ever, but now it's really something that's on the, the immediate political agenda. So what this has meant once more is that Sinn Féin, um, as the idea of United Ireland becomes um, you know, more tangible and more, more possible, um, they shift away once more from the left-wing side of their political character, which has always been you know, underdeveloped and, and subordinate compared with the national side of the political, political character. So they're back very much in this, in this framework of looking for United Ireland. Um, so I would, I would really argue that as um, a vehicle for you know, radical left-wing politics in Ireland, uh, Sinn Féin has proved to be a dead end and will prove to be a dead end, but the history of these attempts to, to marry republicanism uh, with left politics in Ireland, nonetheless, it is a very instructive history and uh, drawing upon um, that tradition with, with its successes as well as its limitations, I think is going to be a very important part of any future uh, successful left-wing project in Ireland.